It's been um, eight and a half months. Eight and a half months since Corona just came strutting into town. Can you believe it? Feels like just last week and maybe a whole lifetime ago at the same time. I don't understand it, but eight and a half months, it's hard to believe. On March the 8th, I preached a sermon I thought was kind of good on how our devices can distract us. Seven very long days later, the entire world was dependent on devices. And perhaps to encourage me for this sermon, Robert's been reminding me uh, that, hey man, it was, you know, it's kind of your preaching that ran the whole church off. (laughs) I mean, numbers never lie, right? What's crazy though, what's crazy though is that while the world went online, is while work and while the world went online, things just kind of sped up, didn't they? The world got faster. The world got noisier. You started hearing things like pandemic, masks, no masks, super spreaders, cases are up, long winter, injustice, racial injustice, the election. It's crazy. These past nine months, these past eight and a half months, the noise of the world has reached a decibel level that I can't remember. It's deafening, which begs the question, do you find yourself longing for the way things were, or do you find yourself longing for the way things will be? If you're like me, and you find yourself longing for the way things were, can you honestly say that we were deeply content back then? Truly, I don't know if things were any better back then. You see, early in the pandemic, when we all sheltered in place, there was a silence in the streets, but there was a noise inside. You see, when we dialed down the noise, it just revealed the noise going on in us. We live in a constant state of chatter, peel back the noise outside, and there's an even louder noise going on in the back of our lives. Our lives are so noisy. We're desperate for just a little peace and quiet. But the world fuels the noise. It screams at us, saying to be seen, be heard, do something that matters, something that lasts, something that will last the test of time. And we contribute to the noise rather than cultivate the quiet. Andy Warhol famously said, in the future, everybody's going to have 15 minutes of fame. That was 1968. But turns out when we go the way of the world and we get our 15 minutes, we wind up living for the way things are, not for the way things will be. When we contribute to the noise, clamoring for notoriety, we wind up just like everybody else in the world. Church, the noise of the world is watering down the Christian witness. And here's the big idea. Main point today. The wisdom of the quiet life is this. It speaks the loudest to the world around us. And so we need to be about cultivating the quiet life rather than contributing to the noise. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that your word still speaks. I pray that you would quiet us now that we might be able to receive your word. Lord, change hearts today. I pray that it is your voice that speaks loudly and more clearly than me today. God, I pray that your word will transform our hearts today. In Jesus, I pray. Amen. We're going to be in 1 Thessalonians 4 today, but before we get there, let me give you a little background about this passage, because the background really sets this up. You see, the Apostle Paul had brought the gospel to the church at Thessalonica. He preached that the Messiah was coming. preached that Messiah was coming. He preached that the Messiah did come, that Jesus was the Messiah, that he did die, that he did rise. 
And then he's coming back again to judge and raise the living and the dead. A people got saved by Paul's preaching. They got saved and a whole church was formed. It was awesome. But the religious leaders didn't like too much about what they heard. So they drove him out of town, kicked him out. And as was Paul, Paul's custom, he would check in on the church a little bit later. And, and when he did that, he found something that kind of concerned him. Found something that kind of concerned him. Listen to what the church was doing. Listen to this. They were so anxious about Jesus' return that they were apparently doing nothing at all except for looking at him, looking for him in the sky. It was kind of like, hey, Nick, you going to work tomorrow? Nah, man, Jesus is coming. I'm going to be out back just looking for him in the clouds. But after a few days of looking for him in the sky, they got a little hungry. And guess whose bread they started eating? Yeah, the people who were working. And those people were like, hey, man, these people got to get to work. They got to get going. The church developed a little reputation. They were lazy. They were idle. It wasn't a good look. They were so heavenly minded that they were no earthly good. And they were so, so Paul wrote to get their heads out of the clouds and get their feet back on the ground. They were missing the point. And Paul tells them to get to work. But what I want to focus on today is how he tells them to work and why. First Thessalonians 4, 9 to 12. Let's read. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that is indeed what you were doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Paul's telling them how the church should act. Jesus is coming and Paul tells them to do the simple stuff. And here's why that matters today. Here's why it's so important. Christianity is a faith that works, walks, and speaks through action. It's a living faith. But we, what we believe actually touches the ground. But if the church isn't acting like it, the world's not going to believe it. You see, if we get so caught up in the noise of the world, we begin to look just like the world, and the wisdom of the quiet life won't speak. Paul tells us to stop contributing to the noise and be a church that lives not for the way things are, but be a church that lives for the way things will be. The wisdom of the quiet life is indeed that it speaks the loudest to the world around us. Paul tells us how to live it out. Three things. Listen to the voice of calling. Cultivate the quiet life and let your life do the talking. Listen to the voice of calling, cultivate the quiet life, and let your life do the talking. Listen to the voice of calling rather than career. Loving others, that's the call of every Christian. That's the great commandment. Loving one another is the signature practice of the quiet life. And the wisdom of the quiet life starts with love. That's where Jesus starts. And I love this in verse 9 and 10. Paul's like, hey, when it comes to loving one another, you don't need anybody to write to you. You don't need anybody to tell you this. But I'm going to do it anyways, because it's that important. I love that. Loving one another. That's what we're supposed to be all about until Jesus returns. It's number one. Then he says, you yourselves. You yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. You yourselves. He means apart from me or without me. In other words, you got this, but you didn't get it on your own. God taught it to you. You have been divinely instructed. Indeed. The quiet life listens to the voice of calling. God taught you this. He spoke it into the heart of every Christian. Paul's saying, you don't need someone else to teach you this. You don't need external instruction because loving one another is already in you, Christian. 
Romans 5, 5, Paul tells us how that works. He says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Love one another. Paul says, do more of that. So listen, listen to the voice that calls you to love one another and do that more and more and more. Now, those of you who know me know I'm a baseball guy. I'm a baseball guy. I love baseball, and I really love the Baltimore Orioles. Always have. Never won anything of record in my lifetime. They're not too good to me. They're not too good to anybody, but I love them. I'm sticking with them till death do us part. I love the Orioles. And honestly, I think I got a better relationship, maybe at least a healthier one now than I did when I was growing up. You see, when I was growing up, I was convinced that I was called to be the shortstop of the Baltimore Orioles. Couldn't, confu- couldn't, couldn't convince me otherwise. I was called. Man, they, they'd ask me, hey, Nick, what are you going to be growing up? I'm going to be the next Kyle Ripken Jr., of course. Yeah, what are you? of course. No questions about it. Had to be. Had to be. There was no other option. I was called to be an Oriole. But the funny thing is, is that turns out I was the only one doing the calling. You see, it was my dream, but it remained a dream. My head was in the clouds and my feet were not on the ground. I was happy to do anything baseball, hit a bucket of balls, fill a bucket of balls, cut the grass, line the field, water the grass, anything baseball, I was eager. But when it came time to do the things that put gas in my truck, I wasn't always so excited about that. You know what I'm saying? If it didn't line up with the pursuit of my calling, I wasn't very excited about it. We tend to overemphasize our calling, which is really code for dream job. And in our pursuit of the career that we want, we wind up just loving ourselves. You see, calling and career are not the same. They're close, kind of in the same ballpark, kind of like that old saying that's not technically true, but we learned it in grade school, at least I did up in the Delta. It's like every square is a rectangle, but not every rectangle is a square. You know, that's kind of what it's like. But a calling, now, a calling implies that someone is speaking. Your career is just a way that you live out your calling. The idea of calling comes from vocation, and we have confused our true vocation with how we make a living. Vocation comes from a word that means voice. Your vocation is not a goal that you pursue. It's not a ladder that you climb. It's a call that you hear to love one another. When we separate our career from our calling, our vocation becomes stripped of its meaning and reduced to a paycheck. When we look at our vocation like this, it becomes some grim determination, some act of the will that our life is going to go this way or that way, however we plan it. And that might work. It might until Corona comes to town and turns everything upside down along with our plans. But true vocation, true calling doesn't come from willfulness or determination. It comes from listening. So let me ask, how's our hearing When we get to a place of quiet, our hearing becomes more attentive to truth and wisdom. And we hear the voice of the Father ringing with crystal clarity that says, You have been taught to love one another. Pursue the calling to love and the career will take care of itself. Here's some questions that I found helpful to help us kind of navigate how we pursue love at work. Here's some questions. Does your significance hinge on your success? Does the job you have, not the job you want, does the job you have help or hinder your love for others? Does your true vocation to love others drive your work? You see, when our vocation drives our work, we can't make our work selfish. Like the Thessalonian church, we need to know that Jesus is coming back. 
But until he does, we need to busy ourselves with the call to love others more. As we look to the future of his return, we can't lose sight of the priority to love. That's the voice of calling that we all share, regardless of our career. Second, we need to cultivate the quiet life rather than contribute to the noise. The quiet life is a simple, it's a simple and restful life. In verse 11, Paul tells us how the church should act. He says, this is how it looks, but it doesn't look how you think. You see, when something really big is announced, like really big, say the coming of Christ, when that's announced, you would expect, you might anticipate some really big activity, like a rally cry to some really big things to get ready for it. Like, you know, get ready, get on your horse, take the gospel to the nations, grab the bullhorn, preach the gospel at the busiest intersections, go run around town and buy up all the billboards. But that's not what Paul says, not at all. Jesus is coming, but he says, don't contribute to the noise. Do the quiet stuff. Paul tells the church to do the basics, not the flash in the pan, razzle-dazzle stuff. He tells them to do the type of things that don't make the headlines. Paul tells the church to do the simple things. Live quietly. Mind your own affairs. Work with your hands. He says, aspire to live quietly. Don't lead a loud and noisy life. Instead, aspire to live quietly. Aspire means to make it your ambition. Be zealous or strive eagerly. So make a major effort to live quietly. The idea here is restfulness, though. It's not silence. The idea is an undisturbed and settled life, not a noisy one. In anticipation of Christ's return, make a major effort to be less frantic and more restful no matter the circumstance. Then he says, mind your own affairs. He's direct here. Mind your business. And he says it like this in 2 Thessalonians 3.11. He says, don't be a busybody. A busybody is someone who's all over the place all the time. It means a waste of labor. They're running around wasting their work on things that really don't matter too much. A person who is constantly on the move is distracted from his walk with God. And so not the most useful in the kingdom. But someone who strives to be at peace and rest with God can be a source of peace to others. Last, Paul says, work with your hands. He's dignifying work here. And in doing so, he's elevating the virtue of humility. You see, back then, back in that day, the Greeks looked down on manual labor. Thought it was degrading, only fit for the servants. But remember, Jesus is a servant. He came as a servant. He said this in Matthew 20, verse 28. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Paul's saying, Jesus is our leader. He served us with his hands. So you guys work with your hands. That's how the church should act. And as we think on Christ's coming, the second advent The last thing the world needs is a bunch of noisy, busybody Christians running around doing a bunch of stuff that doesn't really matter. Simmer down. Live quietly, Paul says. Make a major effort to live restfully and do the simple things. At our Fall Fest last year, my buddy Swayze Waters met a lady named Coach Mo, and he stayed in touch with her. That's just like Swayze. Love him. So relational, such a great connector. But Coach Mo connected Swayze with her 19-year-old nephew, and... Swayze called him up, said, let's go grab some coffee. So they got some coffee and they started talking about our efforts to get the gym going, which by the way is going every Thursday night. So excited about that. So Swayze asked him a story. How'd you meet Jesus? And he, the, the guy said, the young guy said, 
man, some, some really nice guys used to come around my apartment and they'd bring some sack lunches. They'd bring some sack lunches and they taught me how to read my Bible. And now I can teach other people how to read their Bible. This guy has been discipling younger kids in our neighborhood and we just got to meet him. So Swayze's like, man, that's awesome. That's wonderful. Would you be willing to help us? Would you be willing to help us? We want to use the gym as a common ground so that relationships could grow and so that the gospel could go forward in our neighborhood. And listen to what the kid said. Listen to what the young man said. He said, yeah, yeah, I I can do that. Sure, I can do that. But, you know, it doesn't have to be that hard. Just bring some sack lunches, you know? Don't make it so hard. In other words, if you want relationships to go, just play a little basketball and bring some food from now and every now and then. Do the simple things, not the razzle-dazzle. Do the simple stuff of the quiet life. But we can be busybodies. We can waste our time on the things that really don't matter. And it's hard to reconcile our sometimes relentless pursuit for notoriety and recognition with the way and humility of Jesus It's the humility of Christ that's so attractive about the quiet life. You know, there's a difference between being interesting and interested. You notice the humble person because he's interested in you. But he doesn't concern himself too much with being interesting to make himself noticed. Sometimes we can't get out of our own way. And I think part of that problem is rooted in this American dream thing. Work your way to the top because that's where true true peace and true rest exist, where nobody's telling us what to do. We clamor for more and we contribute to the noise going right along with that frenetic pace of life. We're not at peace, so we cannot experience true rest. We buy into the dream placing our jobs on the same plane as our Savior, looking at our jobs to give us fulfillment, but ironically, the pursuit of more Noise makes us less whole, less full, and more empty. When we contribute to the noise of the world, not only do we continually strive for higher and higher, but we're very reluctant to start small and do the entry-level stuff. But what if God used the small beginnings to prepare us for something bigger down the road? Let me tell you why it's okay to start small. Let me tell you why it's okay to start small. Jesus started as a carpenter. He started small. And when it came to the carpentry stuff, I bet he, I seriously doubt he looked at Joseph and be like, hey, Joseph, like, I'm going to die for the sins of the world when I turn 33, so this carpentry stuff, throwaway job. I'm not sanding that tabletop. No, I bet Jesus worked really hard. And I bet he made some really great tables. I bet people who bought us tables were like, hey, come, come eat dinner at my table. God made this table. My table is made by the hand of God. And imagine like the family meals at that table. I, I, I would love to eat at that table. Imagine the family meals. No, no arguing, no fighting, no bickering, and all the kids eat their vegetables around there, right? Look, Jesus worked in a small town doing small stuff, shaping small artifacts of wood before we see him shape the hearts of mankind. God does something in us when we work in obscurity. He's sanctifying, purifying, refining, and preparing us for a greater work down the road. After all, that is kind of a pattern in Scripture. It's kind of a pattern. Before the great Bible heroes make their greatest impact and contribution in the world, we see them working and toiling in obscurity. Think about it. Moses worked in Midian before he became the great leader of God's people. 
Joseph was sold into slavery before he was promoted to the great administrator of the world power in Egypt. David was the last in line shepherd boy before he became king of God's people. And Jesus was 30 before he launched his public ministry and changed the world forever. Do the stuff of the simple life and God might just do something really big in our character. This reminds me of Matthew 25, verse 21, when Jesus told a story about a guy who went on a long journey and and gave some work for his servants to engage in. And when he returns, he said this to two of the three servants. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. But sometimes our aspiration for a certain career can outpace the character that's needed to support it. When we're faithful to work with the work that we've been given, it results in a greater work in the future. Now, I really don't want to downplay this because I know a lot of us wrestle with work and fulfillment. Work is a gift. It's a blessing. And I don't want to downplay it. So here are a few questions that I'll give you guys that have been helpful to me to process fulfillment and work. Okay. What do you love? What are you good at? And then, little checks and balances here. What does someone who knows you really well say that you are lo- that you love and are good at? And be careful about that last one. A five-year-old is going to tell you the truth. Okay. We need to cultivate the quiet life rather than contribute to all the noise. When we culti- cultivate this quiet life, then we can do what I'm going to tell you guys to do in my last point right here. Let the quiet life do the talking. The quiet life does indeed speak the loudest to the world around us. Now remember, remember the problem facing the Thessalonian church. They were so expectant from, for Christ's return that they disengaged from the world. So Paul wrote to get their head out of the clouds, remember, and put their feet back on the ground. Jesus will come again, and that's huge. It brings with it eternal consequence, and that reality has moved the church to urgency for well over 2,000 years. But the quiet life seems far too simple when the work is so vital. And that is Paul's point. Verse 12, so that, so that. Here's the purpose statement of the passage. It's the great big why so that you may walk properly before outsiders. The quiet life is the key to evangelism. It's the integrity of the Christian life in the midst of an agitated, confused, stirred up, messed up world that looks so different from the world. You see, the wisdom of the quiet life cultivates an integrity that makes the gospel credible. In a world that's devoid of peace and peace and rest, people are hungry for a simple picture of what it actually looks like. When Christians love others sacrificially, live quiet and restful lives, take care of their own business and work faithfully, they speak volumes to a watching world. Now notice what Paul says here. He says walk. Notice that he says walk properly before outsiders. It does mean behavior and con- conduct, but what I think he wants us to hear is this. Our faith isn't some theoretical pie-in-the-sky set of morals. Our faith touches the world. Our faith walks the street. Our faith is seen as it is expressed in acts of love. N.T. Wright says this. He says that the image of God is a vocation. It's a calling. The image of God is a vocation like an angled mirror. We reflect God's image to the world. A couple of weeks ago, Kristen, my wife and I, we were honored to share a little bit about our adoption journey with you guys. We've been so encouraged uh, since and before, but we shared, you know, it's been challenging. 
We've uh, hit some roadblocks. We've hit some plenty of rejection. Uh, but when I think about the future and how the Father already knows that child, I get filled with hope and expectation. And here's part of what I hope. Here's part of what I hope and part of what I expect. You see, when I look at my two children right now, there's something about their biology that looks like me, or hopefully Kristen, right? There's something about their biology that looks like us. So when I see them at, at, at work, at, at home, doing some homework, when I see them playing or making a face, you see our face in them. But that might not be the case for our adopted child. Might not be. But no matter that, chase, that child's race, ethnicity, or cultural background, one thing is going to be the same for sure. That child is made in the image of God. So when I dream about this child to come, I see a child at play. I see a child at play that will show me a far grander picture of who God really is. We all bear the image of God. Like an angled mirror, we reflect the truth of God to the world. Christians who live the quiet life reflect God to the world. And that's a lifestyle that an increasingly busy world might just find appealing. Our faith touches the world. Our faith walks the streets. So we need to do the simple things. We don't need to buy the flashy billboards. We are the billboard. We should work for others because Christ came and worked for us. We should be willing to serve and humble ourselves because our Savior came and humbled Himself on our behalf. But when we follow the way of the world, my concern is that the witness of the Christian life gets watered down. We need to walk properly before outsiders. We need to walk the way of Jesus. Check out this chart. On one side, you got the world's way. On the other side, you got Jesus' way. The world says this, be popular, be great, be successful. Avoid suffering and failure. And then you got Jesus' way over here. Reject popularity, be popular with me. Reject greatness, be great with me. Reject success, be a success with me and embrace suffering and failure. Be faithful to me. And as the band gets ready to come up, I want to tell you guys from the Scriptures that Jesus overcame the way of the world in each of these and every way else. Popularity, He rejected it. We see Jesus so many times in the Scriptures pulling away from the popularity of the crowd and escaping into the quiet places where He found the approval of the only one that matters, His Father. Greatness, He rejected that as well. When Jesus' disciples argued about who was the greatest, Jesus said, if anyone would be first, he must become last and servant of all. And success, Christ rejected that too outright. When Jesus had the chance to seize the claim, as the crowds literally heralded his arrival, screaming, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest, we we find him riding into town on a humble donkey, not a white horse. And then right after the parade, we see him weeping over the town, saying this, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. It wasn't the way of the grand white horse. It was the way of the simple things. Then suffering and failure, he embraced it. Praise God that he did. On the night of his betrayal, and in the midst of extreme anguish, he chose not to avoid the suffering, saying to the Father, Not my will, but yours be done. Then again, at trial, Pilate gave Jesus a way out and even tried to release him, but Jesus gave no defense at trial. He remained quiet like a lamb before the shearers, and we have been healed through his suffering. 
Jesus modeled the quiet life for us so that we can model him to a world that is so desperate for hope. And here's why the quiet life matters. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, Paul tells us the goal of the quiet life. Let me put it up. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. This is the idea that all people would come to faith through our quiet lives. The Father delights in the peaceful and quiet life. So back to that calling. Back to that calling real quick. Calling is an invitation. It's an invitation into a relationship that is so far beyond us. So far beyond us. This is an invitation to dine at a table with the king who is preparing a table with his very own hands. We read about that table in Isaiah 25 and again, the table of the future in Revelation 19. In Isaiah 25, verse 6 to 8, the word of God says this, The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. Then we read about it again in Revelation 19, verse 9. We hear the voice of the one calling to us. He says, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So why is it wise to live the quiet life? Because that's a life that speaks loudest to the world around us. The table is not quite set yet. There are still more to gather. The quiet life helps us live in light of the future today. Jesus did come and he's going to come again. Following his lead and lifestyle will make the message of the gospel credible to a world that is so desperate for hope. Pray with me. Father, thank you for the opportunity to stand before your people as a fallen man, but a guy who can stand on the grace that you purchased for me, Lord. We have been bought with a price, and that was a steep price. It was the price of your son, who now bears the name of King of kings and Lord of lords. And God, he is preparing a table, the likes of which this world has never fathomed, certainly not seen. Lord, let us look forward to dining with him, with rich food, well-aged wine. Let us look forward, God, to the people who will fill the seats at your table and be blessed with your bounty. God, you are a great provider and you are always good. That has not changed and it never will. No pandemic can change your character, God. You are the rock that we cling to when the world is upside down. So God, would you help us to cling to you, the unchanging truth? Would you fill us with your spirit and help us live a quiet life that some others out there might just find attractive? God, we love you. We pray your blessing on this church. We pray your blessing on your church. And we pray your blessing on your word. Amen. Let's stand and worship.